0: Well, believe it or not, 9.7 million people a year travel over to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, and yet when it was painted in the 1500s, it would, could have been sold for, and Leonardo almost sold it for $1,000, now valued at over $800 million. There's something about that smile, there's something about that particular painting that draws people to it, and we're all drawn to things, aren't we? In fact, in the series, Self-Portraits, we've seen that we're drawn to certain behaviors, some of which we're proud of. We're drawn to certain things that we're not particularly proud of. As we've been on this journey of what are affectionately known as the seven deadly sins, we've talked about these big no-nos. One of them we're talking about today is lust. It's what are you drawn toward? And whether it's uh, the smile, whether it's a look, whether it's a thing whether it's a feeling, we're all drawn to certain aspects of it. And we would never paint ourselves as someone who struggles with lust or would pursue something or be lustful, yet it's true of all of us that there are appetites in us and cravings in us that steer us in directions that are good, but also steer us in directions that aren't so good. In fact, I don't know if growing up uh, you ever watched uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but the uh, Gene Wilder version... In that version, if you ever remember seeing it, there were several kids that would come. And, and the whole movie was a, a sort of bizarre movie. It was also a metaphor, and embedded in the writer's plans when he wrote the movie, is that each one of the characters represented one of these seven deadly sins. There was uh, August Gloop, who represented Gluttony. He sees that chocolate river, and he's so drawn toward it that he ends up poof, falling in and drowning in the chocolate. There was Violet, always talking about her achievements, a representation of pride. She couldn't not tell you what she had done and what she'd accomplished, and she turns into a, a big purple blueberry, if I remember correctly. That was Veruca Salt, who was always about greed, always had to have what she, she gets what she deserves, and, and always a spoiled brat, and she wanted more, representing our own internal struggles with greed. And then, of course, there were the grandparents in that bizarre scene where they're sitting in the bed. And like all day wrong, they just lay in bed together to represent sloth. But one of the themes that went through the entire movie is this idea that we all lust for something. We all long for something. The golden ticket. And that golden ticket is what would you trade your integrity for? What would you trade your innocence for? What would you trade what you said you hold valuable for? And so Charlie, the young man in the movie, has a great temptation. What would he trade and what is he truly lusting after, especially as a young man who grew up in poverty? Let's watch. Well, today we're going to try and dig into how temptation works and how lust works. And I'm going to try and show you that lust is far more than just sexual lust, so that's a part of it we'll address. There's a much bigger aspect of our cravings and our appetites and our lusts that draw us to fruit of another, that draw us to cross lines we said we'd never cross, to go places we said we'd never go. And to do that, I want to tell a unique Bible story, an account of two people. In fact, Rembrandt had this line artist drawing of these two characters from the Bible that he did. Their names were Jacob and Esau. And in this painting, you see Esau has just returned from hunting, but apparently has not done well because he's not bringing anything home. And As he returns, he's starved and he meets up with his brother. And as Rembrandt Rembrandt painted this, his brother is waiting, younger brother, ready to finally get one over on his older brother. And he has some soup, his brother's favorite soup. And in this moment of time, Esau will trade his birthright, all of his father's wealth, three, five, maybe ten times the portion that his brother would get. He will trade all of that for a simple bowl of soup. Why? How good must the soup be? Why would somebody be so tempted by a bowl of soup that they'd give up something so valuable? Well, today I want to help share with you how there's something in Esau that's in us that our appetites and cravings only know three words. And you'll probably recognize these three words from your own appetites or cravings in different areas of your life. But here are the three words. Our cravings and lusts and appetites come to us and the first word they know is this. That. And all of our hearts are different as to what we pick the that is, but it says that. That thing will satisfy. If I could just have that, that will fully and finally satisfy. I'll finally be happy when I get to that number. Hey, my marriage isn't going the way I wanted, but boy, there's somebody who seems to have character qualities my spouse doesn't. If I just had that, I'd be happy. If I just had that, I'd be appreciated. If I just had that, I'd have respect. Sometimes it's a, a, a number in your quarter. If I could just have that number, I'd be happy. If I just had that size of a territory... If I just had that type of obedient children, and you begin to lust after, crave after, insatiably set your goals toward getting that, especially when it comes to affairs. Emotional affairs turning into physical affairs, it always begins with your cravings saying, that's what I've been missing, that's what I deserve, that's after all the time and all the effort, after everything I do around here, after all the sacrifice I've made, that is do me. Then you get that. Your territory gets big enough, the savings hits that number, your title finally is sitting next to you that you spent 20 years pursuing. And you're like, huh, it's nice. But it didn't fully and finally satisfy. So your cravings and your lust and your appetites give you the second word. More. The issue is not you have the wrong thing, you just don't have enough of it. More of that feeling. More of that success. More houses more flirting more appreciation more time with that person who's offsetting what your spouse isn't giving you anyway just a little more of that you know the human appetites are pretty diverse i mean think of it how many appetites do we have we have the appetite for food the appetite for sex it's probably more i can't think of any more actually yeah (laughs) It's the appetite for revenge, it's the appetite for respect, it's the appetite to be appreciated. And I would even argue this, isn't it true that if you really listen to your own heart, we actually want and crave to be envied by others. We drive cars that we don't even get to see the car because we're on the inside, right? We want people to see us in that car and envy. And maybe you're not into material things, but I bet you still struggle with with lusting or craving after more enviable behavior. Don't you want people to to crave your marriage? Isn't that why sometimes you envy other people's marriages? Because you want other people to envy what you have. You see other people's kids on Facebook and you assume they're all obedient and you're looking at your kids like, "Uh." and you wish people would envy your family or envy more of what you have? It's in me. It's in me, and and as you begin to wrestle with, and you'll hear that voice over and over again, that, whatever that is for you, more, and the third word our cravings know is this. Now. Cravings and lusts never want to wait. The answer is always now. Sure, sure, I got a birthright coming someday when dad dies, but now I need the soup. Now I need e to eat that. And you think, how silly a story is this? How foolish must Esau be to trade this for that? Yet how many of us know people, and how many of us have been people, who traded our integrity for a fling, for an affair, for a peek at that website? To go back to that website, we promised ourselves we wouldn't do it again and we wouldn't do it again. But in the moment, all we heard inside of us was, now I need to be out of this pain. Now I deserve pleasure. Now I deserve to be appreciated. I'll get respected around here, but this will accept me. This will affirm me. This will make me feel better now is why are we going to move the whole family in the middle of junior high in the middle of the high school to this different location every in the family says no 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 it's a bad time bad time can we wait but everything in you says now 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 if i don't get on this track here if i don't take this crossroads now my career is not going to get where it needs to be and that is what i need to be so now we make the decision we're all going to take sacrifices because this is what i need and we got to do it now we're not going to wait How many times has the voice of now caused you to pretend that later is never going to happen? And if you don't do it now, you're never going to get it. And I would say one of the things that causes us to chase this bowl whether we smoke that, drink that, take those pills, keep taking more of those pills, keep on those websites, keep going back to those websites... Often it's because we're medicating. And nowhere does lust and craving come stronger than when we want to medicate pain. Because you will hear inside of you, I'm tired of being lonely in my marriage. Now I'm going to flirt with, at least get emotional support from somebody who's not my spouse. Because now I need help. Now I need comfort. Now I need relief. Now I need to be accepted. Now I need somebody to receive me. And almost always cravings say, I want to stop feeling the feeling I'm feeling. And I need relief now. So I'm going to drink a little bit more of that because now I need relief. I'm going to look at a few more of those images now because I'm feeling lonely and disrespected. If you listen carefully to your own voice, it's not like, well, what's wrong with Esau? It's more like, what's wrong with me? Because I too hear this voice every day, every week, every hour. That. More. And now. I was invited over to a friend's house in the middle of a crisis several years ago who attended our church. And the crisis was, he says, I need help. My my wife found out that I've been having an ongoing affair. Uh, Got on my website, uh, got on my computer, found all kinds of images that I thought I had stored deep enough she wouldn't find. I said, well, how can I help? How can I help you? How can I help the two of you? And as we began to dialogue together, he said, I think it began when I started having severe back pain. What a weird conversation to start this. He said, the amount of pain I have been in, the only thing I found could get rid of it is I just sort of wanted more and more. And I started using sex, and I started using pornography to medicate it. And It's not an excuse, but I started using this thing, objectifying this thing, to keep from feeling a feeling I didn't want to have. And I just kept crossing lines because I needed more and more and more and more doses to chase the temporary relief I was getting. Let's listen to a story of a guy I'm going to have speak next year. His name's Milan, or uh, Milan, rather. And he was sharing about a woman who's uh, just had a great marriage, great family, a man of faith, Christian man. And uh, he died, and it was just really... Heartbreaking for all involved died at an early age I think it was in his early 50s and they had this incredible funeral celebrating his legacy and celebrating his life and celebrating just a man of integrity and faith and then she over the next few months of slowly mourning was sort of taking things selling things getting rid of things and she came to see him as a counselor to say as I was cleaning out his office I found all kinds of stuff that I didn't know he struggled with I didn't know he was involved in And now I'm grieving and mourning who was this man I was married to if this is the stuff I found. So no matter what we look like on the outside, there's a secret version of us that the voice of that now and more uniquely is going to draw you in or try and draw you in. So I want to try and be really practical and really helpful. Let's start by honestly saying in whatever form it takes, that voice speaks to all of us. So how did Esau end up here and how do we end up here and how can we keep from doing it? Well, it begins by asking yourself five questions. What are the five questions that would help you on your journey to keep from getting that close to temptation? And the first question is this. Before you face a decision about a job, before you face a a, a decision about getting on the computer late at night, am I tired? It says that when Jacob cooked a, a stew he's got this stew ready to go, and it smells good, and it's delicious. It's giving off the aromas. Esau had come in from the field, and he was weary. When we are weary, when we are tired, when our, our, our fortitude is down, that is when we are most temptable. That's when we're most susceptible to not hold the line, we're most susceptible to give in to the voices of that more and now. If you think of Esau, he was a trained hunter. This is what he does for a living. He hunts and apparently has not been a successful hunt because he's come home with nothing. He can't even make his own meal. So he's probably feeling emotionally like, man, I've been a failure. I can't believe it. I've been out all this time, all this effort. I deserve to catch something. I should catch something. What kind of a hunter can't hunt? And he's physically tired. And how often when you're physically tired, do you say things you wish you hadn't said? Do you go places or farther than you think you should have gone? You let your anger go a little bit farther just because you're tired. I have a friend of mine who's in his 20s or early 30s. I think his 20s and he was a single and he really felt himself continually drawn toward pornography. And he said, I need to realize there's certain checklist I want to put in place. He put this on his computer. And he would go, before he turned on his computer, he'd go over this checklist of eight questions I think he had. I don't remember all of them. But they were things that, when I'm in this condition, I'm more prone to go places I don't want to go. The first question is, am I tired? If I'm tired, I need to not get on the computer right now. Am I feeling unappreciated? Is it after 11 o'clock? Am I alone? These were mechanisms he put in place... And if he didn't answer no to all of these, he's like, I need to not get on the computer right now. Because no matter what I start getting onto, I'm not going to end up in that place. And I would propose to you, whatever your bowl of soup is, that when you come to make a decision about moving, about speaking, you need to start with a simple question. Am I tired? Do I have the emotional capacity to make this decision right now, to enter into this environment right now? Second question, am I feeling empty? When you are feeling empty, you are prone to look for something to fill that. Look what happens in the passage. Esau says to Jacob, please feed me. Feed me. I am feeling empty. I haven't won anything. haven't fought anything. And I'm starved. Feed me with that same red stew for I'm weary. He's weary and he's empty. This is the path to temptation. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Feed me. This is how temptation and cravings always work. You remember The Little Shop of Horrors? Feed me, Seymour, feed me. Just one drop of blood, feed me. And he starts... Feed me, Seymour, feed me. What does he want more? Just that blood, just one drop of blood. Now he needs more, more, more. Now, now, now. And when you are tired and when you are empty, there is never a time that that plant inside you does not grow more and you hear, feed me, Seymour, feed me. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger because it's insatiable. When you're feeling empty, I want to propose to you something I've seen in my own heart. As you begin to look around in your life, consciously or unconsciously, and say to yourself, man, I'm empty and I deserve what I think other people have. I deserve, because of how hard I work, I deserve, because everything I've been doing, I deserve what I think other people have. And you're on Facebook, and you know the stats that shows everybody's on Facebook, the long, you're long, if you're on Facebook longer than an hour, your, your rate of depression goes up. Because you begin to compare what your life is, how your kids obey, what your marriage is like and you see other people's pictures you say, oh, I bet you their husband is very sensitive, cares about them. I bet you they don't talk the way I would just talk to. I bet you their kids respect and and I feel empty. Feed me. And in that feeding... You begin to say, I deserve what I think other people have. I bet you they got a spark in their relationship we don't have. I bet you their sex life is better than ours. I bet you they have, they have uh, more fun together than we do. And that emptiness begins to steer you toward temptation. The third question, this is probably unique to you, you've got to figure out what it looks like, but am I in the red zone? And what does it look like when you're in the red zone? And you know you're not just tired or empty, you're starting to move towards something unhealthy. It's so weird that there's something about this soup, this stew. It wasn't just stew, it was red stew. And he notes that, oh, it's not just any soup, it's red stew. Look at it, is it yummy? Look at that red bowl, look at that red liquid. That, 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 more, more, more of that. Now, 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 that will satisfy me, he says. So much so that when he gets that, and he will get that by trading his birthright, it will leave a legacy that will transcend generations. So much so that the red stew, the same red stew, it says, For I am weary, and therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. And the Edomites, which are the descendants of Esau will be known as the red ones for generations. A reminder that somebody's dad, somebody's grandpa, somebody's great-great-grandpa was in the red zone, and in the red zone, they traded red stew for a legacy of a birthright, of influence, of integrity, and of faith. Do you know what your red zone looks like? so that you can even have a checklist when you're feeling emotionally unappreciated, when you're feeling like I'm not getting what I deserve because if you don't know what your red zone looks like, you're just going to blast right past this question I was talking with a couple about a year ago just kept getting into fights and kept getting into fights I was talking with the husband, got to be a good friend of mine and I said, well, what, what happens? He says, I don't know. She starts talking, and, and, and I just feel immediately disrespected. I said, let's role play that. So we did, and, and she was, in this instance, talking very, I can't speak to what happens at home, but in this instance, speaking very gently and very respectfully. I said, well, how does she sound right now? I just feel like I'm being nagged to death right now. And we began to track back into his history. He felt very henpecked by his mom, and so any woman who even voiced an opinion different from him he interpreted that and internalized that. And, and he used this phrase, I'll never forget, he says, Chad, as soon as I hear conflict, as soon as I hear disagreement, I just feel I'm being disrespected and I just see red, he said. And the level of anger and daggers that came out of him. I said, well, let's try and back you up. Your red zone happens very quickly. Let's figure out Why? And for him, the that, the bowl of soup, was unless I'm respected, which he defined as no one disagreeing with me on anything I've ever said. But he had to track back and figure out what got him in the red zone so quickly. Because when you're in the red zone, that's the place where I'm in the unique place and the unique situation, temptation, that that particular bowl that wouldn't tempt you, wouldn't tempt you, is my bowl. And when I get close to that bowl, I just head, I'm, I'm, I'm now hook, line, and sinker going into this thing. Are you tired? Are you empty? Are you in your unique red zone? And then you're going to hear this. Question four is, is the voice of now telling you that later will never come? You're in a difficult time in your marriage. It's not a summer. It's a winter. And that winter's been going on for a while. And it's during that winter you say, she's never going to change. He's never going to understand. And the voice of now, now, now says later is a pipe dream. Later is not ever going to happen. You're a fool. You're a fool if you think later's ever coming. So you better get it now because only fools wait for later. Look at how that voice is operating in Esau. Jacob said, Sell your. Oh, so Jacob turns to Esau and says, Sell your birthright. As of this day, right here, right now, I'll give you the soup. Right here, you can have it, or you can wait till later to that birthright, you know, someday when dad dies, a theoretical birthright. And Esau replies, look at his words, Look, 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 I am about to die. That's always what cravings and lust sounds like. If I don't get this now, if I don't get pleasure now, if I don't have somebody accept me now, if I don't let this all out now, if I don't tell you how it is now, I'm never going to get chance. And since my marriage isn't going to get better and it's not worth chasing, it's not worth waiting for it. If you're dating somebody, it's not worth waiting for a better person. I guess it's the best I'm going to get. So I'll take now because I don't want to keep waiting and I don't want to be lonely single. And if you've been married any amount of time and you're honest with yourself or with other people who are going to be honest and not just put on a front, we have all who have been married, all of us, had many, many moments and seasons in our marriage when we went, I don't think it's going to get better than this. And I don't like what I got. And in that moment, you're tempted to start looking around, just glancing. And when you're glancing, you're going to begin to notice someone else And you're going to notice that someone else, and you're going to take that person's strengths that you only see from a distance and compare it to your spouse's weaknesses that you see very up close. And your spouse is always going to lose because you're putting their weaknesses in a real relationship up against somebody else's strengths who looks really good from a distance. And that's why affairs start, because affairs always begin with the fantasy, and you got the dopamine rush. And you got the, the rush of, 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 of your brain literally being reprogrammed by now, 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 now. And then eventually, you begin to sacrifice all the things you said you mattered. But behind that was a question. And you, you can, if you listen real carefully, you can hear it. It's a voice that says, this is never going to change. Later is never going to come. So you better do it now. And now you've marched closer and closer to the point to the fifth question. You you eat the soup, you look at the website, you have the affair, you have the first meeting, you have the first flirt, you're on your way into this bowl of soup. And then the fifth question, do negative emotions follow the short-term positive ones? Temptation wouldn't be temptation if it didn't have some benefit, right? There's always a benefit to to stepping into temptation. There's a short-term burst. That short-term could be a week, a month, even a year. But do negative emotions follow the short-term positive emotions? Look what it says in the passage. Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and drank a rose and went his way. Wow, that's exactly what I needed. And then immediately Esau despised his birthright what I thought was going to solve all my issues, and pretty quickly after that, on the way, he has buyer's remorse. That's how temptation works. Whatever that is, your cravings say, that is an eight. If I could have that, drive that, be with that. That's why we objectify people. They turn into a that. It's going to be an eight. And then you step into that. You flirt with that. You have a one-night stand with that. You go on the website with that. And it might be an eight. But that's kind of a six. A few minutes later, a day later, a week later. But then it comes with all this guilt and shame and regret. And it wasn't really an eight. it's really a six. And now with all the negative emotions that came with it, self-hatred, it's actually about a three. And you have buyer's remorse. Because that didn't fully satisfy more of that. and like You tell yourself so you get back into more. Oh, I just need more of that. We'll do this more often. Once a week, twice a week. Let's have secret rendezvous more often than this. Let's get on the website more often. Let's strike kinkier stuff. More. But that 8 keeps going down to a 6, to a 5, to a 4, to a 3, to a 2. And all of it keeps coming with shame and keeps coming with, with remorse and regret. And you're chasing a high, and the denominator keeps getting lower and lower. And that's how you can f- figure out if your heart's moving toward temptation. Because the more you chase it, the less it satisfies. That's how cravings and lust work. So, how do we keep from going into it? Number one, to ask ourselves those five questions just real practically. When you come to a situation, am I tired? Am I feeling empty? Am I in my red zone? Do do I hear the voice of later will never come? And when I get into those situations, does the negative emotions quickly come after the short-term positive experience? But there's more than that. That just keeps us from getting too close too soon, but it doesn't solve the problem. There's something broken in us that needs forgiveness, but also needs something to come in and transform us and tame us and shape us. So we need to actually reshape or reframe our cravings and our appetites. See, psychologists tell us that one of the things that leads to temptation is called focalism. You begin to make that the piece, and you focus in on that, and you blur out everything else. I don't care if the kids don't want to move. That's what I need. I don't care whether or not, you know, I I said I would keep my vows. You know, this is what I deserve now because of everything I put up with. And we focus on one thing, we frame that one thing, and everything else blurs, everything else becomes less important, everything else becomes less of a priority, everything else is a a second, third, tenth priority. But if you could reframe your cravings and reframe your appetites, you can use focalism to your advantage. When you start focusing on one thing, what if instead he happened to be carrying that birthright? In a scroll with him. What if instead of focusing on that red soup or those lentils, what if instead we, let's just take a moment and reframe and focus on the birthright? What is this birthright? And it may be a long time away, but what am I going to get here? What does God promise me through my Father? Well, three to ten times the wealth. But it's not now, it's later. It's influence. The one who got the birthright was one who had influence over the family. He was the patriarch of the family. You would get a chance to influence your children and grandchildren of future generations with power, with money, with spiritual influence. If we zoomed in on the fine print here of his birthright and looked at what did God promise me? What does God have for me? What does God say will come to me if I wait for that? The ability to transform and change and influence generations. You see, your integrity feels like it's in the small print when you got a bowl of red soup in front of you. And your brain then focuses in on that and, and your, your cravings hijack your brain to come up with reasons why that is true and this is not. But if we focused on those aspects and say, God, help me to see what is true here because my brain has, has blurred out everything that's true and focused in on the lie. But you're not going to find the power in you to resist that. You need access to a higher power source. Because you've tried. You made promises you weren't going to do it again. I'm not going to gossip again. You gossiped again. I'm not going to cross that line. You cross that line. You don't have the resources in you to do that. One, to forgive yourself so you can get out of that self-hatred and remorse and shame. You need somebody else to forgive you for that. And somebody else to help guide you in that. And that is why God came from heaven to earth through Jesus. And one of the most powerful moments is when he comes face to face with the tempter himself. And the greatest temptations in history come upon Jesus. And every time you hear the voice of the tempter say, that, you hungry, Jesus? Haven't eaten 40 days? That's what you need. Turn that rock into some bread. That and more of it. And Jesus, who equally could have heard the voices of that more and now now you can eat now you can eat it's been 40 days jesus reframed instead of focusing on the bread and the stone he reframed onto it is written i'm more than just a material being and physical being i'm going to proceed by every word that comes out of god's mouth he reframed and refocused he's offered all the kingdoms of the world Lust for power, lust for influence, lust for money, lust for to, to be respected, to be bowed down to and worshipped by everybody around, to be enviable. And he again says, refocus, it's written. I'm going to focus on something different. As, as much as these feelings may be here, as much as these voices may be, I'm going to focus on, you shall love the Lord your God. That God is my sustainer. That I'd rather have his value that's permanent Then these other temporary things that people like you for a moment, your eight turns into a six, turns into a three. And then his very identity gets challenged in temptation. Yeah, if you really are who you say you are, throw yourself off here. And even God said that he would help you, rescue you. Prove to me you are who you say you are. And Jesus again reframes and says, I want to put God first. He's where I get my identity. I don't need to test my God because I have trust in my God. And he blows temptation out of the water. And then Jesus marches his way through his life to an old rugged cross. Not so that we can pretend we've never lusted, so that we can admit that we've lusted all the time. We just have different flavors of it. He says, the reason I'm dying on this cross is because I want to forgive you of your guilt and I want to cover you your shame. And when I cover your shame, you can start bringing your temptations out in the open. Yep, I struggle with that. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I've looked at that. Yeah, I've said that. Yeah, I've done that. And instead of trying to pretend you're something you're not, you can be honest with who you are. And God says, bring it out. You're not going to surprise me. I know anyway. I can not only forgive your guilt, but I can cover your shame. And in the context of my grace, I can help you understand how you've allowed these lusts and appetites to to sabotage what you said you really wanted, what you said really mattered in your life. And then Jesus says, if you ask for my forgiveness, you can also ask for my leadership. God, God, I want Jesus to be my forgiver and my leader, and I will come into your life. And that might sound weird, like Casper the Friendly Ghost is coming in you, but, but think of it this way. You need a power source outside of yourself. And Jesus says, I'm it. I proved myself. I can beat this thing. And I will come and my spirit will live in you and i only forgive you and cover your shame and guilt and allow you to be honest with yourself, but also I'll give you the leadership and the power you need to overcome that. And the reason this is so powerful is because many of us grew up in religion where you've got to pretend you are or try harder to, and you can't ever be honest when you blow it. But the message of the gospel, the Bible, the good news is that actually... It's in the act of admitting that we've been broken and that we've been stolen away by lust and our, our moments have been stolen and our takers have been stolen that we're more valuable through redemption when we're bought back. Take the story of the Mona Lisa. Leonardo could have sold it for $1,000 in the 1500s. That would have been a lot of money. A lot of money in 1500. But it's currently worth 800 million. But you know why it's worth 800 million? It's not because it's that great of a painting. So, how can you say that? Well, let me tell you the story. In 1911, it wasn't worth that much. No, more, more than $1,000, but it certainly wasn't worth $800 million. But there was a man, a janitor, a security officer, who was designed to put the plastic or to build the, uh, the glass frames to protect the paintings. One night he thought to himself, I think I'm going to take it. So he hid one night, 1911, in the closet. They closed up shop at the Louvre. He snuck out. No security cameras back then. Barely any security at museums, really, except for some locked doors. He came out. He grabbed the Mona Lisa, stuck it under his nightcoat, made his way to the door, which was locked, took the doorknob off. A nearby plumber uh, came by, saw him struggling, helped him get out. And he said, oh, I work here. And they put it back together. He hid the Mona Lisa in his attic for two years. Police looked. For two years, it had been stolen away. For two years, he had the Mona Lisa all to his own. And because of that, the Mona Lisa became the most printed painting in history because there was an international search to who found it, an international mystery, who stole this, and they could not figure it out. And he was scot-free off. And after two years of that being the most published and printed painting in all of history all around the world, he decided to come back and admit that he had it. He actually thought he'd be a hero. He only got about two years in jail for it, surprisingly. But because that painting had been stolen and returned, its value skyrocketed. If a different painting had been stolen and returned, probably that one would be worth $800 million. It was the act of being stolen and bought back and returned that brought its value. And that is the message of the Bible. That pretending you've never done this, or never struggle with this, is not how you find your value. It's in admitting you do this, have done this, continue to do this, and you need God to buy you back and bring you back. And that is the power of what God offers through the message. So as we end this series today, I want to give you a chance to just maybe reach your hand out to God metaphorically in prayer and say, God, I've heard those three voices. I need your forgiveness through Jesus and I need help. Yeah, I need help to listen to these questions. I blow past all five of those questions. I don't even have those questions. And I need the power to want something more valuable than the red soup I keep giving into. Let me lead us in prayer and we'll we'll end the series this way. Let's pray together. Maybe you just want to begin forgiveness. Say, God, forgive me for giving in to the voice of that more and now. God, I'm stuck in my guilt. I'm feeling the shame and regret and I need forgiveness and help. Thank you for dying, not just for people, but for me for my cravings, for my appetites. And I invite you to come into my life. If you've done that before, God, I invite you to take the wheel of my life in a deeper way. Give me the power you had through your spirit to resist temptation in my life, in my heart, that I can live in the freedom of grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here for this series. We're starting a brand new series next week about how the Bible is a smart book that can really help transform our lives. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week. Grab your Kaboom tickets out by the fireplace. Thanks again.